Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Melanie. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, this is our second try at this. I think we uh, tried to record this conversation sometime around the first of the year and technology wasn't cooperating, uh, but that always allows for... Uh, that seems to be a regular thing lately. I think several of my guests might tell me that Jason needs to, maybe maybe it's my silly old laptop here that I'm working off of. I don't know. But um, anyway, Melanie, I am delighted to have you back here today to have this conversation. Uh, before we dive into our big idea or bold opinion that you brought for us, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? 
Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's great to be back. My name is Melanie Rodriguez. Um, I've worked with over 20 nonprofits in North, Central, South America. And my sweet spot, what I'm really passionate about is education. So today I lead social impact for Hoot Reading, which is a social enterprise that connects kids with experienced teachers to practice reading over our app. And so as social impact, I get to work with nonprofits and charities on a daily basis to help provide these lessons for free. So you've raised money. So let me make sure I got that. Yeah. So you've raised money. And one, one of the things I really sort of stumble over my words and get all tongue tied over is I have it, largely because I've only raised money here in the States. Am I hearing that you've done uh, international fundraising in like other parts of the world? And maybe you could help me make some sense of that. Yes. So most of my fundraising has been here in Canada, but uh -huh. our projects were abroad. And so when yeah. I worked in, let's say, Nicaragua or in Honduras and other countries, I wasn't so much on the fundraising side, but more working on the ground in the projects versus when I worked with projects in Peru and Bolivia. I was doing a lot of fundraising, mainly in Canada, but a little bit in Peru as well. So, so what does that, what does that look like to, um, again, because all of my work is here and what, what, what does that look like to sort of hop, hop, hop on a plane, go to another part of the world, do the work that we do? What, what were some of the distinctives that you would sort of say really sort of made the nonprofit work different than perhaps what your experiences were there in Canada? Sure. So here in Canada, I very much do an office job. So yeah. when you think of your traditional fundraising hat, that's what my day to day is. Versus when I worked abroad, it was something different every day. It was actually going into communities, interviewing families, working with locals, hearing their solutions and helping them implement their solutions. Versus yeah. in Canada, I get to brainstorm my own creative kind of marketing ideas. Um, and so it's just two very different learning journeys. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, can, I can appreciate that. I've been doing some some writing recently. There's a there's a concept between what are called kind and kind and wicked learning environments. And wicked isn't used in the sort of like the evil, good, bad sort of sense. It's just the type of learning environment that you're in. And in the in a wicked and learning environment, you have to actually have to be very aware and familiar and sort of sensitive to the environment that you're in because the environment's trying to teach you things that you don't necessarily pick up on extremely, uh, you know, very quickly. Um, and so uh, I have to imagine that that's kind of what that's like is that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all the stuff you can't learn in a textbook. You know what I mean? Um, learning is uh, sort of in the field. Um, Melanie, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. And um, usually my guests come on here with big ideas, opinions that I'm not necessarily prepped for and haven't really thought a whole lot. That's kind of what makes fun, makes the fun of a meaningful conversation. What do you got for us today? I believe that digital champions are the future of fundraising and that they are going to be a core element of every fundraising plan moving forward. So that's that's what we talked about before, and we didn't air that conversation. I very specifically remember the notion of digital champions. So tell us what that means. Sure. So a digital champion is an individual that shares about your they advocate on behalf of your organization online. So when we think about social media, that's the most common place for a digital champion. And I think what I talked to you about is um, the big difference between a digital champion and an influencer 
is something that's important. So a digital champion is someone who is a local in your community. They could be someone who is your boss. There's someone who's close to you, who's speaking to you directly versus an influencer is someone who could be speaking to everyone in the world and they're a celebrity, not your everyday person. So are you organizing, um, again, so, so going back to even some of our preliminary conversation, is the digital champion for the organization, you know, for ABC organization, are they in Canada? Are they in Peru? Are they here in the U.S.? Where is this person at or does that even matter? It does matter in the sense that they should be where you're targeting your fundraising efforts. So, okay. for example, if my programs are in Canada and my fundraisers are in Canada, having a digital champion that is across the world is probably not likely because they're not going to connect with our content. But if you work on a global platform, so, for example, in my company, we are based in Canada, but we serve people all around the world, then having a digital champion in Europe can be very beneficial for us because then more people are learning about our social impact initiatives. So one of the things, I, I, when we had this conversation before, I think one of the things I remembered was the, sort of the parallel and, and perhaps the distinct similarity between a concept that we use at Responsive, and, and you might recall this, we, we call them high-capacity volunteers. And it, and it seems like perhaps you're introducing this concept of a digital champion in much the same way and perhaps uh, defining their their role and the, 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 the capabilities that they have within the digital space. Am I right? So this is a volunteer who's highly capable, highly talented at doing what they're doing. They don't necessarily need to be managed. In many ways, they need to be resourced and they need to be relinquished, you know, control. It's not really about control. It's about sort of relinquishing that control and letting them get out there and do some amazing stuff. Is that what we're kind of talking about? Yes. I think there's two um, different versions of digital champions. So there's the one you talked about, who is someone who is a high capacity volunteer. They're what I like to call a mobilizer. They are very much ingrained in your organization. They know what's going on. And so they're the perfect person to advocate and share your work. But I also think there's a lot of untapped potential out there, which is people who are not your current volunteers. They're not your current donors. They're not people who are actively engaged. But the idea is that they're going to learn about you through maybe another digital champion and gradually become more and more of a champion for you. So maybe it's starting with, oh, I saw my friend Melanie share about this. I want to learn more. So now I'm following you. Well, that's not a digital champion. But as they continue to follow and engage over time, they may be like, well, I want to share about this too. This is such great work. And then the idea is that you want to convert other people to become digital champions, even if they weren't a part of your immediate network at the beginning. Okay. So let's trace the journey of this digital champion that we're talking about. Cause I, 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 I'm starting to sort of pick up on it and, and, and that's kind of where we start. That's kind of where you almost went, but just there for a moment. So let's say her name's Sally. Where do we meet Sally for the first time? I mean, do we meet her? Is she a, is she a donor? Is she not a donor? Do we meet, meet her at the, the, at, a, at, a, at an actual in-person event or do we meet her on Facebook? Where, where did we meet Sally? Where did that initial connection get made? So when you're first kind of building out your program for digital champions, you really want to start with the people closest to your organization first. So these are your employees. These are your 
high capacity volunteers. These are the people ingrained in your organization. So that's who Sally would be um, originally. Okay. But then once you feel like you've really tapped into Sally and all of their networks, then you want to kind of build this out further and you go, okay, well, who's the next person who would be next in line? And those may be your donors. Maybe they're your monthly donors. So they're not someone that is actively engaged in the sense that they're volunteering with you, but they very much support your work. So then it's a matter of, well, what call to actions can we have when we're emailing them, when we're engaging with them to really let them know how important it is to not only donate, but to share the importance of our work. And once you grow out those two levels, that's how you start getting into what I call like the untapped potential, which are the people who were not previously donors. They didn't have any strong connections to your organizations, but they had a strong connection with another champion, which then introduced them into your organization. And that's when you start building them out. And all this is through kind of social media tactics. It's not meeting one-on-one. There are things that you can do kind of efficiently at scale. Is she? Sally's a volunteer, correct? She's definitely a volunteer. We're not paying her. Or are we paying her? Sally is a volunteer when she's a digital champion. That Everything she posts about is 100% volunteer-based. She may actually be an employee in your organization. And there's yeah. you know a lot of reasons to do that. But her actual work as a digital champion is just fostered in her belief that she wants to make the world a better place. She believes in your mission. So she wants to get other people on board to learn about your mission and the work you're doing as well. So is some of this, is, is some of this, so I, I, I have to imagine that I am probably, um, or, or clarify this. So I have to imagine that in some ways for some organizations or for some groups that I could actually be, like I'm, I may even play that role, but I'm not, I've not been given any sort of formal title. They may not even know I exist. I, I, I just, I share all their stuff. I talk about their stuff. I, I, I champion their, their, their vision. But I'm not necessarily, I don't even know if I'm in their database. Am I necessarily a digital champion for them or do I have to, does does the organization that I'm referring to, I probably think of two or three of them, they need to find me and and organize me and my, my peers a little better. So there are formal programs. I'm seeing more and more charities sign up for this, specifically when they're targeting millennials or youth. And so they'll have a formal program where they'll actually call them, maybe not a digital champion, maybe they call them a digital ambassador. And that is very much a formal program where they're giving them the information that they want to share. But I really believe that digital champions do not need to necessarily be in a formal program, especially the ones who are already engaged in your organization. Now, you mentioned, oh, do these organizations know I exist? They probably don't. If they're doing their analytics correctly in their engagement, they should. The person who's managing their LinkedIn, if you're continuously sharing and commenting, they should hopefully be very much aware of you and then trying to encourage that behavior by commenting on your post and thanking you and appreciating you because digital champions are not going to stay digital champions. If you just say, here's the information, go forward. You really need to encourage them and value them and let them know that what they're doing is actually creating an impact. And I think a big gap that we have with charities is a lot of people don't actually understand the impact that digital champions bring. And that's what's really important because if you as a charity don't understand the value or your marketing person doesn't, then that digital champion is not going to stick around because they're 
their time is valuable. Um, I'm a big believer time is money. So if they're spending their time on you and you're not appreciating and you're not seeing what they're bringing, then they're going to stop and you're going to lose those benefits. So maybe it could be helpful for us to kind of back it up to really understand why does a digital champion even matter today when there's so many other ways to engage people? Yeah, I think that you you got me thinking here for a minute and 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 I want you to back up like you're suggesting but I also want to um you're exactly right that um that maybe maybe I don't know that it's being organized you know the idea that say for example for example I'm I'm on social media I'm I'm one of their digital champions but is it is it in some ways the idea that the lack of formality that actually keeps me going. Like if, as soon as they tried to plug me into a club, I might run from it. Does that make sense? Does that, does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I think there are two very types of, um, I don't want to say donors, but I, whether they're donors or volunteers, let's just use yeah. the term mobilizer. There's the one yeah. who loves the formal program because they want to put it on their resume. They want to like shout to the world that they're this position. And there's someone else who's just like, I want to make an impact. I want to do my own thing and share when I want to. So I don't want to be a part of a formal program because I just want to share what I believe in. And both of them are great people to have advocating for your organization. You just need to manage them and appreciate them in different ways. Yeah, I think you're really starting to connect the dots in my head. And I want to I want to allow you to continue to connect the dots for our listeners. You were going to back up and give some other details. Where were you going with that? Yeah. So I think for me, there's three main reasons that digital champions are so important to think of from a fundraising perspective, not just from a, you know, this is good to do to engage people. It really does have tangible benefits. So when we look at the trends of giving, it's very clear that social media is at the forefront. Millennials, Gen X, it's their number one way they want to give. Boomers, it's their number two way. But I would argue that we're going to see it switch to number one because we're having so many issues with spam and scams through email services that social media is going to become more present um, when you are able to click on a campaign that's from a friend. We also see that almost half of the people now are using crowdfunding. And that really leads to we're not donating because of facts. We're donating with our heart and we're donating because of who we're connected to. And so that's kind of where the digital champions comes in, because a lot of marketing people may look at that and say, "Okay, you've given me a bunch of great stats for Facebook or for social media. So why wouldn't I invest my time into ads versus my time managing a bunch of people where I don't know the return on investment? And I think that's fair in the sense that people love knowing for certain if I put in X amount of money or X amount of hours, this is the return I'm expected to get. But Digital Champions is a really long-term play. And the reason they're so important is because of the lack of trust in our sector. So the Edelman report came out, you know, in 2019. Then it came out, I read again in 2021, that there's continuously a decrease in nonprofit organizations. And this isn't about us being ethical. It's mainly due to our competency. They don't think we're as competent as businesses are to advance social good. And when you kind of just go through any millennial kind of blog, I shouldn't say any, but a large portion of them, when we talk about giving, we see these repeated patterns of, I don't want physical goods. I don't want direct mail because all that money is being taken away from the organization itself. And I think these are very fair points. And so when we use our digital champions, we can kind of combat this in two ways. 
One, digital champions are a long-term investment. So over time, they're way cheaper to invest in than ads, than physical goods, than direct mail. But two, we're also overcoming that lack of trust that or that people have in organizations by leveraging the people they know. Because in that same report that showed decreased trust in nonprofits, we also saw increased trust in our local communities and in our employers, which means when we have employers who are advocating for our organizations or we have your friend in your local Facebook group advocating for your local nonprofit, you are way more likely to trust them and to donate than you would be if you just saw a traditional Facebook ad for a charity. Okay. Can we go back to, um, I, I wrote your three points down here and you really got me simmering on all three of them. Can we go back to the comment about baby boomers? Cause I think it's particularly insightful to sort of think about how, because I've been talking a lot about the baby boomers for several years, even before the pandemic. I remember I was at an event. Um, I've, I've referenced it before where I made a, a, a pretty bold, everybody in the audience sort of sat up in their seat and said, what did you just say? Um, how are the baby boomers going to make fundraising difficult for us? Um, because they're sort of becoming that they're like the go-to, you know, 65 year old major donor that we're sort of going to. And they've also had a lot of mail in their mailbox for a number of decades. Now they're perhaps you're suggesting getting a little weary and skeptical of the email that's landing in their inboxes. And you're suggesting that perhaps Becoming a digital journal is going to, a digital champion is going to sort of help them. To, yeah, help me with that because I want to understand the, I want to understand what's going on there. I like it. Yeah. So right now, the number one way that boomers like to give is mm-hmm. through email. And through I would email, say right, that this okay. isn't sustainable. I think they are going to switch to Facebook just in the sense that their social media is already growing and over 20% of them are already giving through Facebook. So it's not, you know, I think when we talk about boomers, a lot of people will say, um, well, they're they're not going to adapt to social media. They already are on there and they're already giving. It may not be their number one, but it's their number two. And I'm a big believer in trying to be ahead of the curve. So rather than waiting till boomers choose Facebook or whatever their social media platform as choice is the number one way to give, um, why not invest in it now? Because they are more likely to want to invest in, let's say, if their daughter is posting about a charity, they are more likely to donate to it. And that's not just an opinion. We know there's tons of different data that shows that the amount you give and when you give will change based on who is introducing you to it. And so I I just feel like with boomers, there's so much potential to um advocate and to work with them through social media. And at the same time, you're already setting up Gen X, you're setting up millennials and future generations that we already know it's their number one. So for me, there's only winning when you really double down on this social media strategy that's focused on trust versus focused on your immediate ROI that a Facebook ad could give you. So there's an author and Melanie, it's totally it's totally interesting that you're 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 describing this the way you are because um, there's an author at Penn that I've been reading his stuff about change for a number of years, and he talks a lot about this notion of social reinforcement, and it's the idea. So to sort of put this in very practical, sort of to actually use an application or an example, we've got we've got Jim and Jim and Rhonda, the baby boomer donors who are on pla- uh, on 
the Facebook platform making a decision about who they're going to support on Giving Tuesday. And what uh, Centola is his name, what Centola would say is, is that if there's not enough social reinforcement, which I'm guessing is what you're sort of looking for here with these digital champions, if there's not enough enough social reinforcement within Jim and Rhonda's sort of social network, where those gifts go, even even if we're talking about a gift is, is as little as you know $115 on Giving Tuesday, it may not go where you want it to go. Is 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 that sort of some of the some of the logic that we're talking about here? Definitely. And I'm yeah. also talking to how social media can be connected to email. So it's not that tomorrow they're gonna stop giving through email, but these yeah. digital champions build that pipeline to get them onto your email list. And I think that's what's really important. Once someone's on the email list, if they're a boomer, yes, they're more likely to give through there. But how do we grow that list with boomers? A great way can be through these digital champions because they see a friend, a family member saying how great this organization is. They either donate directly through Facebook, which we know they're already doing, or they may say, I want to learn more. I'm going to join their email list. And then they're in your pipeline and you can convert them uh, through your future campaigns. Okay. And your, and your second point in that, in that list of sort of adding some additional clarity to sort of the advantages of this idea is this notion of sort of giving with the crowd. Um, I, I think one of the things that we're seeing uh, with the, with the I mean, just last couple of years with all the various different um, the social unrest after the George Floyd murder, um, what we're seeing playing out in the Ukraine, even perhaps somebody I'm sure could provide me with some wonderful examples of what played out during the pandemic and, and the response there. But, but there is these conversations of sort of um, the word I'm constantly using is the idea of sort of solidarity, of sort of solidarity with your fellow citizens in another part of the community, another part of the world. And and so we want to give with the crowd. Is is that what these, these digital champions sort of help us do as well, is sort of create that solidarity with the person that we may be actually complete strangers with in a in a more literal sense, but by doing this on Facebook, we become part of a shared community. Yes, they're building a shared community. They're building that trust and they're building the top uh, of your pipeline. Like I think your this digital champion is not going to be the person that says, Hey, I'm going to ask someone to do, give you a thousand dollars. That's not their role. Yeah. Their role is to right, introduce right, your sure. organization. So someone wants to learn more and I think what's also really interesting is that the money you're going to get from this camp, if you think of it as a campaign or a program, is actually more than the people who are donating to you because you're also improving all of your marketing reach and engagement metrics. So now you're also going to be able to boost your sponsorship revenue because your marketing outputs are going to be so much greater than they were prior. So you also benefit kind of two ways. You're raising awareness. You're building a pipeline of donors. And now you also can go to your sponsors and say, hey, instead of reaching a million people this year, we actually reached 2 million. So we're going, we're asking for more money when you have your logo or your assets with us because your brand reach is going to be that much further now. So we can justify this increase in costs. Okay. Now that's that's important, important clarification because I think a lot of people who are probably listening to our conversation today are thinking, when, when they're hearing us talk about digital champions, they're thinking 
some of this peer-to-peer fundraising where the, the one individual is asking the other individual to give, but you're describing an individual who isn't soliciting their friends for support on behalf of ABC Charity, but more of what they're doing is, is they're actually demonstrate it, it's more about their behavior and exhibiting their behavior in a very visible way so other people can see it. Am, am I right? And and again, this goes back to Centola's research that I'm very fascinated with at Penn, is that is that this idea that we would sort of exhibit the idea that I would support ABC charity on Giving Tuesday and exhibit that behavior online so that people can see it is is where a lot of that value comes from. It's not because I asked my neighbor to give, it's because I let my neighbor see what I'm doing. Am I describing it the same way? That's exactly it. So they may be sharing a blog, which a lot of people say, well, what does that do for me? I want them to ask for money, but you actually don't in the long term because sharing the blog and sharing all the things that are going on is what's going to build trust and make them want to learn more about your organization versus if their first post is, hey, do you want to donate 20 bucks? They may give 20 bucks, but then they may be like, okay, I'm done. I don't really care anymore. This is really about fostering that long-term relationship with a donor Except for you're not actually doing it. It's someone, it's your digital champion doing it for you. So they're saving all that work um, of getting them to know about your cause and getting them invested into it. And sponsorship okay. money and, is just a huge bonus. And, and, and I think that's actually probably the most exciting point that you've just made is you're talking about the long term, which I don't think enough, enough of us in fundraising are thinking about. And you're also talking about you're talking about the long term, you're talking about highly efficient fundraising, but you're also talking about indirect fundraising. I think a lot of us get really excited about the idea of knowing, for example, when we're talking about peer to peer of any form that we can compel Sally to go ask Jim very directly to give to something. And I don't know that it necessarily works as well. And what you're talking about is more of an indirect route where I'm exhibiting my behavior. I'm exhibiting what's important to me. I'm sharing the narrative that sort of plays out in my life as it relates to the organization. And in the long term, there's an adoption of those people whose who's thinking and decisions and behavior I influence that sort of works out. So it's a very indirect way of doing things. Um, you know, Melanie, I don't know if we like indirect anything in fundraising. <laughs> we like a very linear straight line, like show me how to raise money, show me how to raise money tomorrow from the person and tell me exactly what to ask them for. Um, it, that seems a little unsettling, doesn't it? You say unsettling. I say very <laughs> exciting because I see. Oh, I, I, I think it's exciting too, but I'm yeah. right there with you. I don't know if all of our listeners who ha- who work for a board and a boss who are saying, give me a linear pass so I know exactly how much money's in the checking account next week. That's the unsettling. That's very true. And I think it's important to know that this idea is also backed in research. It's not just, let's just try this out and see if it works. Although I do love picking those methods too. But when we look at social media and we really like break it down, I think it was nonprofit source who they have tons of different stats on this. And they said, once someone is engaging on your social media feed, so if we take that digital champion, they're now sharing about it. Their friend is goes, this is really interesting. I'm going to follow it. They follow, they start engaging. 55% of the people who engage with you on social media end up taking action for your cause. So again, that's not direct money. 
But of those 55%, we're looking at 59% will donate. So that's donate actual money. Over half of them will donate items. 40% of them will buy products for you. Like there are tangible results that you will see, but it is a long-term play. And so I think it's important to know that this isn't someone who's spending a full-time job on digital champions. That I understand would be very unsettling because that's a big risk with, I think, a big reward, but it's unknown. This is changing the way you think about your marketing and your marketing hours. So instead of allocating, let's say you allocate three hours a week and focused on building paid ad content, this is saying, okay, we're going to do an hour and a half. We're going to do some paid content because you know we're risk averse and we want to hedge our bets, but I'm going to spend an hour and a half focusing on engaging and really encouraging people to become these digital champions. So it's changing the way you do it. And once you change your processes, it actually doesn't take more time. And I think that's what really I get excited about is that everyone assumes that building digital champions takes all this time and all this manpower. But when I did it in my last role, I had 30 minutes a day to manage all our social media accounts. And I just did a couple quick, you know, changes and At the beginning, yeah, it took time. But once that became my norm, it was 30 minutes a day and I was able to grow us from 3,000 to 20,000. Like not huge jumps, but this gradual, slow increase. And we saw that increase across all of our future projects, whether it's event registration, the amount of downloads on projects, the amount of engagement and surveys. So you do see these results within a year. This isn't you know, you're going to see them in 20 years. You will see them build up. You just need to change the way that you're working day to day. Okay. So, so before I let you go, a lot of what we're talking about here is, it's, it's emergent behavior that happens from these simple interactions. So you're talking about when you tell, when you have a complex adaptive system, I talk about this in my social entrepreneurship course, when you have all these simple connections that exist that say, for example, within Facebook, you have this emergent behavior, for example, like what we saw with um, uh, the, the ice bucket challenge, for example, a lot of people are out there thinking that they can manipulate and create machines that yield ice buckets, the ice bucket challenge. When in fact, what it was, was it was, a, it was really a bunch of digital champions who were all willing to volunteer this small sort of, interaction with their with their network that created this completely unpredictable and quite phenomenal exponential sort of return on everybody's investment. Um, I mean, there is a science here, but it's a science that's not ingrained in the way that fundraising gets done. And, and, and part of Melanie, what I think I think I want my listeners to really hear is, is that a lot of us who've been in the fundraising space for decades have spent a lot of our time doing new donor acquisition when in fact, some of the things that I think you're talking about, Melanie, totally resolve the new donor acquisition without actually having to pay anyone. And so that's why I'm constantly saying, for example, that our work needs to shift away from the initial gift, that first, essentially that first donation that perhaps we get as a result of what you're describing And we need to figure out how to renew that gift, which is the problem that we seem to have. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate the challenge you brought up because I think that's a great way of showing how that was a really short-term ROI. But how many people were genuinely invested long-term? Probably a lot less. And so a digital champion is not going to be that ice bucket challenge every time. The idea is that 
you're gradually getting people interested. So they are that long-term donor versus that here's $20 for a marathon peer to peer. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Right. And, and, and so many of our organizations, I mean, I work with these private schools, for example, and they do those runs or book sales or whatever they do and they're getting, and, and it's almost like the underlying sort of built in assumptions behind things like give days and giving Tuesdays. And I don't think we're sort of, we're not doing, we're not making the long-term investments that yield these initial responses that ultimately sort of deliver a long-term sort of value. And I feel like it's because we're trying to control more of it. Um, what I think this whole conversation in and out of this whole conversation has been a degree of the organization relinquishing control to a group of people that are not on their payroll. Am I right? Yes, that's you're completely I can't control right. this. I can't control this. This is going to make people nervous. I, I, I love it, but I also know I know the sector really well. So. <laughs> um, uh, Melanie, this has been a really fun conversation. I think we have successfully successfully gotten through the technology this time around. I think there's going to be some very interested people on the other who have been listening to our conversation and they're going to they're going to be curious how they learn more about this. Um, they're going to want to reach out to you. Uh, how would they do that? And what are they going to come looking for? Sure. So the best way to reach me is probably through LinkedIn. You can also reach me through email as well. Um, and in terms of what they'll come looking for, I love talking about this. I love helping people um, be able to build these programs out. So if anyone needs any tips or guidance, um, feel free to connect on LinkedIn and Speaking of digital champions, you'll probably see me posting stuff about the company I love, um, which is Hoot Reading. Yes. Well, Mel Melanie, you're always welcome back. This has been really fun. And um, thank you. It's been, it's been great. Thank you so much. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.